You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by... Marie D'Alessandri. Mike Williams. And Chris Green. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories of the last week, uh, starting with a fairly fairly prominent discussion, uh, whether or not we need E3. Now, this was prompted by a couple of reports, one which we posted on GamesIndustry.biz, I believe exclusively, and another which came out uh, to the wider media. Fan Census showed its figures uh, and its analysis for how well game reveals have done compared to last E3. Um, and even kind of compared to like ones that yeah they've compared ones that like those that were attached to a, an event like the IGN Expo for example or the Summer of Gaming or one of the many many Jeff Keighley fests um, and those that were unattached to any event those were, that were just dropped in the middle of nowhere like Paper Mario and uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla their conclusion and I am dramatically oversimplifying this is that we don't need E3 because actually all of the reveals or most of the reveals did more. Uh, in terms of press coverage and got more headlines and more uh, mentions in uh, you know ed- ed- articles and headlines and and on social media than previous year superdata did their own report which shows kind of similar that reveals certainly from major publishers didn't suffer from not being at E3 because obviously you know, E3 being cancelled by the pandemic there was no E3 so the major publishers their reveals actually went quite well but the smaller publishers so for example the the indies and the studios that were included in the PC gaming show they didn't get as much attention as those have in previous years Chris you had an opinion I had an opinion. I did have an opinion. Um, and that, um, I love fan census. I've used their data for many, many, many years. Um, but they uh, have a habit of just looking at numbers. Um, uh, because let, uh, is the best way to reveal a game just, just in, a, in, a, in a trailer, in a live stream video? Um, uh, it's, it's not. Um, I, I, I look at the Halo announcement last. I mean, in terms of a next gen game reveal, that was probably the worst. I mean, it was it was it was it was not a good look. Uh, there were memes flying around about bad, bad, bad Halo looks. You know, um, this is supposed to be the next generation. It can't, doesn't look that great. But the truth is, it probably plays really wonderfully. I mean, I've heard it does. I've heard it's a wonderful, smooth, beautiful, excellent first-person experience. Which, of course, we'd all have known if we were able to, you know, get our hands on it um, on the Xbox booth the next day. Um, and that's what we'd be able to write about. Um, uh, the PlayStation, even the PlayStation 5 press conference, which went down really well. Everyone was very, very happy with the PS5 press conference. Um, there was all these people going, oh, but it wasn't seem very next-gen. Well, I'm pretty sure I've played all this on PlayStation 4. Um, you can't really, really show the power of the SSD in a, in a trailer. You can't show, or even a, even a gameplay demo to a degree, um, you can't really show... Um, uh, games are meant to be played. You can't show the dual... Jeff Keighley talking about how wonderful the dual sense is isn't enough we need more than that and um and uh and that's why you need physical that's why there's a need particularly for the big games there is a need for physical events they sort of show us what the products are um also uh, also everything's up everything if you've got if you're doing anything online with a captive audience that we've got at the moment um uh everything's i mean we, we okay i don't want to discredit everyone that's doing really well doing amazing journalism but the amount of num- the numbers we're seeing, even on GamesIndustry.biz, is unbelievable, and it's not just because uh, our journalists are fantastic. Even though you know we need to put out good content, otherwise people won't read at all. Um, it's because we have an audience of people stuck at home, looking for things to read about, looking for things to 
talk about and we we provide that outlet for them and and we've got such a big audience um i'd say i think i think there's a legitimate conversation to be had about um, whether or not all these events need to be done at the same time or, or quite so close together about spreading things out a little bit more um, and all this sort of thing, particularly when you look at how well Crash Bandicoot did in terms of views. But um, in terms of the idea that E3, um, or I mean, we choose E3, but it's also, you know, physical events generally that can be replaced by digital events over a prolonged, messy, complicated three-month period. I I strongly disagree. Um, I also... I also like E3 as a gamer, not necessarily as a as a media person or, or, or an attendee. Even though I, I actually I actually don't mind it, um, I, I like E3 as a, as a consumer. It's very exciting, it's thrilling, um, and I use this example in my opinion piece where um, uh, I, I like the fact that I get a lot of news at the same time, a lot of trailers at the same time. It's like Christmas Day. People used to compare E3 to like Christmas, and if you spread out all your Christmas presents over three months, well, that would just be rubbish. Um, even if it does make logical sense. So um, I disagree with fan censuses. Uh, their data was sound, and, you know, it's fascinating to see how well games have been doing and how many people are viewing it. I think that's fantastic. But I don't think it tells us anything about whether or not we need E3 or not. And in fact, I'd argue that this year has proven that we really do. I agree with Chris. Um, as, as a gamer, uh, first and foremost, I think I just enjoy E3. I enjoy having this, this focus during a week and I have all my news and all my things, etc, etc. Um, having said that, um, I also agree that maybe having a physical event um, is not necessarily um, mandatory for E3 to be successful. What I deeply disliked this year is what Chris just described um just how long the whole thing was, like for an entire month, having so many fragmented announcements and so many events and so much Jeff Keighley and like, it was just all a bit too much. And as a result, my attention just completely decreased as the month um, kept going. So like, while I'm still, I think what we need is just something more focused. And so does it take the same form as what we're used to, what we were used to with that physical event uh, is like remains to be seen, in my opinion. It could still be digital and then I'd be happy and I think it makes it much more accessible for, uh, for instance, for developers from underrepresented countries and backgrounds that we have to pay for visas to go to E3 and stuff like that if they want to. Or I say E3, but again, applies to GDC or Gamescom, all that type of events. Um, but yeah, anyway, I've lost track of what I was saying at this point. But yes, all that to say that uh, it was way too fragmented, in my opinion. I missed having a focused point with all my news and announcements. And a lot of, I'm sure, very, very good indie games have been completely lost uh, for me because I just there was just too much. I remember Bug Snacks. That's it. I would agree with uh, that latter point as someone who uh, actually has to cover all of that from the consumer side. So like E3 for us is a, a sustained sprint where for like a week you go all out every day and then you sort of collapse at the end and write everything out. And that's fine. This was like three months of like a jog, just jogging and continuing to go and every week there's like two or three like demos and I, I'm very impressed at how uh the the industry has sort of 
found ways around it. I had an Ubisoft demo that was streamed to me on Parsec. Um, some people are using Steam uh, in a, a slightly different way where they give you a key, you play it for a while, and then they revoke it. Um, so that was all interesting to see happen in real time, see them. But uh, it it's tiring, and, and as Marie said, I... There was a Wholesome Games uh, event, a streamed event, and at the end of it, I, I straight said on our works, like, yeah, I forgot every one of those games. Like, all of those games I've completely forgotten, and I feel bad, but that's just the way it is. Uh, on the physical part, I, I think this E3 would have been a sort of different... Like, I just need to be able to play the game... Um, but this E3 needed to give us time with the systems themselves because we don't have the systems. So we don't, we don't have a PS5 in our house already. I think jump back to 2019 or jump back to 2018 and the physical need of me being like in a room with PR person is much less. So like once all the systems are out, I, I don't necessarily need the physical nature of it because I can just play the game and especially being able to play the game and then just be like, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I've, I've played the game. Now I'm going to go and walk over to my fridge and grab a Red Bull and, and write about this. Uh, I, I, prefer that in some respects. Uh, do we need E3? Uh, I've written before that we don't necessarily, but that's not because a physical event is a bad thing. That's because there are, are so many other events now that also allow us to physically play games and meet developers. Kind of expanding on Chris's point, like, of like it's not just playing the games that gives us that extra analysis it's also like the kind of the behind the, the behind closed doors presentations the longer gameplay damage you'd get at the show um so i'm thinking of like and you know the, the nature of these online presentations they're trying to cram a lot of reveals and a lot of um excitement into most of them have been less than an hour when you think like your your, your typical playstation or e3 press conference um, sorry, PlayStation or Xbox E3 press conference, those used to be up to like two hours and you'd have, what, 70 plus games. And then they're trying to cram, and I say 50 games into in, into like half an hour, 40 minutes. You're only getting very brief trailers. Whereas when you're at E3, even if you're only getting brief trailers, you're still finding out more about the games from the, the longer presentation. So I'm thinking of the one and only time I have been to E3. They finished the Xbox press conference with Cyberpunk. Decent trailer for Cyberpunk, very CGI, no in-game footage, just kind of gave, gave the tone of Night City. It's like, okay, that looks pretty cool. But that was one of the most talked about games that week because they showed an hour-long gameplay demo behind closed doors that was incredible. And the game, if, if that year had been digital only, no one would be talking about Cyberpunk quite as, even close to as much as they had been that year. I mean, they could get everybody on a Zoom call, couldn't yeah, they? Yeah, like, so, we're, we're still getting those events... Uh, the timing is kind of off. So like, say, like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Ubisoft actually was able to get 
Like I had a presentation for like 20 minutes over Zoom, and then I played the game for four hours. And they made sure to time that so that as soon as the Ubisoft Ford thing ended, our previews went up. Not everyone is sort of on that speed, on that level. So that stuff is still happening. It's just way spread out. That's that's the part I'm talking about, how I'm getting like like two or three game demos a week at this point, uh, which is all the like, here's a Zoom call. We're going to sit and hear about the game. You get to play the game for three hours, and then you get 15 minutes to talk to a developer. Those are still happening. It's just... Instead of it all being crammed into one week, it's been spread out amongst all of these other live stream events. I mean, from a media, from a pure media perspective, like um, you can replicate a lot of it. Like you can do, you know, uh, get behind closed doors gameplay demos. You can stream. You know, when cloud streaming becomes more of a thing, you'll be able to stream these games um, uh, a lot more effectively over Stadia, for instance. I mean, there, there's definitely things that you can do and let's be clear nobody nobody none of this is this isn't anybody's idea nobody in media nobody in publishing went yeah let's not do e3 let's 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 do digitally instead this was never the pitch um but uh the the thing that i'm it's not just about the media and it's actually and it's not even just about going hands-on it's about this this it's about being it's about generating some excitement and some attention um you're not going to get um, if you have like several events scattered over the course of a period of time. You um, you don't get you're not going to get the BBC doing seven interviews. Ugh, it's difficult to explain. Um, E3 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 is like a like a big. It's, it's the thing. It's it's so it's one of those events that that's more than the sum of its parts because you can recreate a lot of it in the digital space, and but you can't. But you can't. Um, you can't generate the sort of big attention on the games industry or video games in general that E3 can. You can do it briefly when there's a new console out, but if you're in the middle, any other point in the, name one other time in a year, non-console year, because obviously when PlayStation reveal a new console, lots of people pay attention. But any other time in the year when when you get an, uh, when you get a, a, a where where the whole the CNNs and the BBCs and the Skies descend upon a location and say this is what the video games industry is up to. That you might occasionally get a big esports event do it, or you might get a Gamescom. But the only event that does it consistently with everybody is E3, and I think the industry loses that if it goes away. And this industry fought for this in the first place. There was a time back in 1995 when E3 came about. Um, uh, uh, games industry was forced to like do all their stuff at, uh, um, at the uh, uh, the CES technology show. And, it, um, and you know, games used to be stuffed at the back. It used to get rained on. And they, they demanded their own event. They went, rushed out. Sega, Nintendo, they all came together and went, let's put together our own show. We should be doing our own statement show. So the idea that we'd sort of be pulling away from that, I just think it's, I think, coming together, doing a big statement about what the games industry is about. Now, I think E3 has a business model problem. I don't think it has a popularity problem. I don't think it has a... Um, uh, 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 a need problem. I think it's just in terms of how do you justify buying those boobs and spending all that money on the show and sending people out there. I think that's the problem. But actually, from a media perspective, I mean, from our perspective, uh, Mike, it's from an industry perspective. I am. Um, we've had way more access, or maybe not more access, but we've definitely had more time with publishers and developers than we've ever had at E3. Um, we had 
basically three hours worth of senior Xbox interviews two, two weeks ago. We would never have got that. And we had days and days and days of which to write it all up. So it was, in some ways, it's been better for the media. But, um, but I... I, I no, I, yeah. I really miss E3. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I, when I wrote about this before over on US Gamer, my, my argument wasn't that I, I don't think that the idea of something like E3 is, uh, isn't necessary. It's just uh, we now have what we didn't have way back in the day is, is like, and of course we are all owned by read pop which runs packs but we have all of the pack shows we have gamescom there's so many other alternate outlets for that same thing and i think e3 in in chasing some of those outlets has lost that focus which you bring up you brought up at the end there like they've lost that focus if you want to do a consumer focused show that's fine, but a consumer-focused show requires certain uh, different constraints, uh, different uh, content that you offer, and I don't think E3 is quite there yet. Uh, and it's it's hurting the other side, where developers and publishers were able to sort of walk the show floor and see what each other were doing and and get a taste of that and then sort of also do the executive business stuff uh behind closed doors or whatever hmm. i think that's actually that's a that's an interesting thing because um the um the global uh global e3 is a global event it brings people in from around the world but it's also and it's a, an event that's been evolving and it's always evolved it's not it's, you know it used to be a retail event and now it's then it became a media event and now it's trying to go into a consumer event I actually think one of the things I found quite fascinating from this is all of these solutions that have been now been uh, experimented on in order to deliver this content digitally. And if you want to turn E3 into a consumer show, well, you can do it. Turn it into a digital consumer show. Make it a physical industry event and a digital consumer show. You know, E3 doesn't do any of its own digital stuff. It brings in the media to cover that um, those things on the show floor. Nintendo, PlayStation, Xbox all host its own thing. The only, t- the only, the only digital only digital thing it does is also a physical thing which is its coliseum concept we did with you know marie's favorite person jeff Keeley. um <laughs> so um i the, have nothing um, against him i'd like to say by no, the way. He's good, yeah, he's, <laughs> <laughs> just see his um, face a lot <laughs> the uh um the uh i can't remember what i was saying um so I, it'd be interesting to you know you know if if you could consumers could buy you know the consumer ticket to e3 is a digital ticket you know where you, you can get, get these games experience streamed to you temporary codes and you can uh, you can get access to digital talks and access to round tables with developers or whatever um and, and that way is a way of balancing it or you go down obviously everyone talks about the gamescom model where the event is basically split in half but i'm not entirely sure where you do an event that can that's simultaneously the world's biggest consumer show and the world's biggest industry event all at one. Um, Cole Mess, which is the where uh, Gamescom takes place, is basically the size of a town, um, and uh, the Los Angeles Convention Center absolutely is not. Um, but yeah, it isn't a show that's in the middle of a transition. And it, and this is the thing with the, all of this COVID stuff. I do wonder if the transition gets accelerated, um, and that uh, when E three does land next year, we have a show that's not a, an evolution from 2019 but um but a quite a different feeling sort of uh, event that's the thing i wonder about 
future E3s or certainly certainly next year's E3 is there's a lot of talk about like how events will be able to come back in terms of whether they'll be able to they might be at the same scale in terms of show floor size and number of companies arriving but in terms of attendees that might have to be lower and obviously a bit more social distancing and stuff because covid covid is not going away by the end of the year and everything will be absolutely back to normal at the risk of using the oft used phrase it'll be the new normal as people keep on saying so i i was reading a nico uh, partners report earlier today about um all the the Malaysia and Singapore game markets, they kind of rely on uh, big expos for or big trade shows in those regions are a big, big boost to their economy in terms of the tourism and stuff. And those those physical events may return, but they'll be on a smaller scale in terms of there won't be as many attendees. The, the shows will be as big, but there won't be as many attendees because of social distancing and hygiene and all this that and the other. So I wonder if, yeah, as, as you say, Chris, like, we'll start scaling back to, or certainly next year, we'll scale back to a smaller E3 that is particularly, you know, like specifically trade and professionals and media and much fewer, if any, consumers at all. That kind of goes, flies in the face of what ESA has been trying to do with it the last couple of years. They've been trying to grow that that consumer attendance um, side of things. They've been trying to make this a massive, massive kind of almost Comic-Con style thing that people can come to and uh, enjoy the latest games and stuff. But... Uh, you know and yes maybe you can replicate or at least divert some of that online and do a kind of a digital consumer show and a physical industry show but then they won't be able to say how much were they selling consumer tickets for it was a good few hundred perhaps thousand dollars Mm. like so but i wonder if i wonder my point was like the industry wasn't overly from and anecdotally from what i gathered the industry wasn't overly keen on the number of the rising number of consumers that that e3 was inviting and it certainly from the media's point of view it didn't quite work i wonder if this is kind of forced their hand that you know what no we are ha- going to have to focus on right who does get to come to e3 it can't just be consumers it can't be everyone we're going to have to focus on who does and doesn't get to go to e3 and that'll make a much more focused show next year it'll go one way or the other Sorry. it will <laughs> that's a good point it will go one way or the other <laughs> <laughs> and i wasn't say more marie <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> couldn't resist no i just i just wanted to um continue more or less on that on that on what james was saying but also going back to something that chris was saying earlier is that e3 is really good at creating a moment um that moment where actually everyone is looking at what video games uh, as an industry is doing and yeah that doesn't really happen any other time of the year uh but i think creating that moment doesn't have to take a physical form because like most people know E3 for the big Ubisoft conference or the big Xbox or Sony or whatever, well, not Sony recently, but, um, and that can still happen without it being a physical event. And, uh, yeah, it would, it could, it could still work really well being more focused. And I'm really curious to, I mean, we will never know, obviously, but E3 was already changing a lot. And I'm, I really wonder what E3 would have looked like this year anyway, if COVID hadn't happened. Like, obviously, we're going into science fiction territory here. But I think it would have been a very mm. different E3 anyway, even if COVID hasn't happened. Yeah, I mean, E3 is um, caught between um, is caught between two different, like, two different views. Like, we're talking about it here. Like, a minute, we had, a minute ago, we are talking about, well, maybe the event becomes more industry-focused. Um, but um, on the other hand, it might become more consumer focused. Uh, that's why when I was saying it can go one way or another, it's going to go one way or it's going to go in one of those directions. Um, see the, and it's just, a, and um, 
ESA. ESA isn't a company, really. I mean, it is a company, but it, ESA is a is a body is a body created by games publishers. It's run by the games industry. And um, the reason why E3 is stuck in this middle ground is because the games industry is split over what the show should be. Like it's, they can change, they can change the show into whatever we want it to be. If we want it to be like PAX, we can change it into PAX. If they want it to be like Comic Con, where it's a load of panels and and discussions about things, they could turn it into that. Um, the, if they want it to be a, um, uh, a pure-bred industry, we can turn it into that. The problem is EA wants it to be a consumer sh- show. Such and such wants it to be more consumer-rated. And the other Warner Brothers, Take-Two, want it to stay as an industry show. And that is why the ESA are trying to do... They sort of let some consumers in, but not that many. They have some consumer elements, but not, but not all of it. To be fair, E3 is a terrible consumer show. Half the event is behind closed doors. You can't even have to get any... You have to have an appointment... You end up queuing up. If, you, if I would, if, if I bought a ticket to E3 and spent my entire time queuing up to play Zelda, I'd be mortified. But the, um, but um, so yeah, it's it's caught between those those two yeah. little those two little groups. And, and I mean, if you're going to do a PAX or a Comic Con, you need to have part of the way those shows work is counter programming. So you might have a game or something that people want to play, but you also have say, a panel over here, either with uh, developers or creators or whatever, or fans who are just out there uh, slinging their wares and showing what they've been doing. And the problem with E3 is it doesn't, uh, at, at least in its last incarnation, doesn't really play to either strength. It just sort of sits there in the middle being sad and... I, I think so many other events are starting to take some of that thunder. You got uh, PAX devs, you got the GI events, uh, and then on the other side, you got your Comic-Cons, you got your PAXs, you got Gamescom, that at least Gamescom even has the split, you know, the split days to sort of make it kind of work. And if E3 wants to do that, that's fine, but they do need to pick a direction and I know why they can't, but that that still it doesn't change it from being a problem. Well, yeah, no, it needs to be. It needs um, Gamescom. The best thing for me is not even the split days. Gamescom. The best thing is the fact that the halls are so separate. You you could go to the industry part of Gamescom and not have to. I mean, I always I always make the mistake of doing it at least once. But you don't have to go into the consumer area at all. You don't have to see. You don't have I've to see the I've never been to the consumer area at all. I've been to Gamescom I, every year for the well, past three years. You guys are lucky. <laughs> I would. I always got forced. Every year, I would have someone give me an appointment. Like, even if it was just a presentation or something, I was yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. come to our, down to our booth in the consumer hall. I was like, no, I don't want to. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's yeah, actually, serious. you're right. I, I lied. Yeah. I, I I play the game with Gamescom every year where I stand because you, if you're in the industry, you can get in an hour early. I stand at the bit where the where the masses are gathered by the um, by the gate, ready to come in. They just unlock the door and I sort of play a game where I just get close enough so I could see it. And then I, it was the gates open. I fl- I run <laughs> just because it's like the Lion King stamp. Yeah, because it's 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 uh, it's great. I mean, I love seeing like how popular the medium is and how great it is. This enthusiastic people. I don't want to mingle with them, um, but I'm I, I'm I'm always amazed. But, but anyway, um, so yeah, I, could, I mean, Ethan could go down any of these routes, and it's it's basically down to the publishers to agree. And this is the thing. I spoke to Pete Hines at E3, Bethesda's Pete Hines at E3 last year, and I talked to him, and he just said. We just need to get around the table and agree what this show is, and it, and it was a really. I said, well, that's exactly what he said. It. We just we need to agree what this show is, and we all need to stick by it and sign on and come along. Otherwise, we're going to lose it. 
And But who's we and here? It's only the big publishers, right? Because E3 for indies would mean a completely different thing altogether, right? And yeah, I mean, if it's all, it's also only for the console industry, right? If you're into smartphones, PC games, indie developers, E3, you might be able to break through. I mean, there's always an example. There's always an example of a game that's uh, made by a small studio that got more attention than would have done, and there are examples of it. But yeah, broadly for smaller companies and mobile, we always every year whenever I used to interview the ESA before E3, I'd ask them what about indies and what about mobile, and they go, oh yeah, yeah, well we've got Greed coming this year, and then they don't come next year. Uh, we've got an indie pavilion booth. Which which gets smaller and smaller with every year. It's 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 not really that show. It is the glitz and the glamour. It's the it's the big blockbusters. It's the 10 million sellers. And I think that's the thing I actually missed a little bit this year. And again, it's nobody's fault. But um, when PlayStation's press conference finished, I realised I had no idea what I was, was going to get from PS5 this year because all I saw were first-party games. EA hadn't gone yet. Ubisoft hadn't gone yet. We still don't know about the next Call of Duty. If you're a Nintendo fan, who knows what Nintendo are doing? Um, it's... It is it, after E3. I always knew where the industry was, at least the console industry, where it was heading, what the big games are going to be, what the people thought the trends were in gameplay and stuff. And you know, it's taken. I, I actually forgot the other day there was until this EA story I read today. I forgot that EA announced a Star Wars uh, flight game. It's so easy to forget stuff, and it's so easy to miss stuff. Like I, I watched the Xbox presentation, but I forgot to watch it on Jeff Keighley's stream, so I missed like a bunch of extra games that were announced after the event. Ah, oh, it's like. It's um, and that's the thing with um, digital events. The digital side of it is there's just so many powerful digital companies. There are, you know, Mike talks about um, how there are lots of events now, like PAX, like Comic Cons, competing. And you know, he's right. But in the digital space, you know, there's not only there, there are IGNs and Keeleys and Gamespots and Futures. There's even more competing for all of these big exclusives and these these streams and that kind of thing. The number of digital events has just been crazy and. And it, it actually makes it more messy and more complicated. I, uh, there's something about the simplicity of E3 I really like. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I just, you know, what, I've just missed it. And I, I think that a lot of people were saying, I think after this year's E3, we'll realise that we don't need the show. And I think we, 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 we don't need the show. I don't think we ever did need the show. But I think I'd hope. I don't know. Um, we'll see. I guess when all the dust has settled. But I suspect that a lot of people will want the show. And um, and I hope that we have a nice big one next year. Yeah, I mean, it depends on uh, uh, how the U.S. is. <laughs> uh. <laughs> the other big discussion this week was uh, the 30% revenue share that Apple takes and many stores take from their app stores or various Market marketplaces, um, essentially, like the all the big tech firms are under a lot of uh, scrutiny at the moment, particularly in the European Commission and over in the US. Uh, there are hearings left, right, and centre. For other companies, it's primarily focused on um, antitrust, anti-competitive behaviour. Um, but with Apple, the conversation tends to skew towards the fact that it is still taking thirty percent of all revenue from. Uh, the developers that use its store. So that's 30% of the the price when you download an app. When you buy an app, 30% of that goes to Apple. When you buy an in-game purchase, 30% of that goes to Apple. When you subscribe to something, 30% of that goes to Apple for the first year, and then that goes down to 15%. And of course, as uh, Rob Farhi pointed out in his column this week, that means that over the lifetime of your free-to-play game, 
30% of the money you are making is going to Apple all because they happen to have the store or you know the, the store that you're you're getting the game from which of course there is no other alternative on iOS devices it has to go through the Apple store you can't just sideload um apps onto Apple it's been a bit of a debate and, and Rob came up with quite an interesting point which was uh, the basis of his column a lot of people agree that 30% is too high. There have been quotes about this for a good few years now. I believe Frederick Wester from Paradox uh, Interactive, I think he said it was frankly ridiculous. I think that was the words he used a couple of years back. Uh, Tim Sweeney over at um, Epic has obviously quite openly said that you know it's too high. It's a, it's a tax. It's a it's a store tax. And he's, he's put his money where his mouth is, is by launching the, the Epic Game Store where the revenue sh- share is 12%. So Epic only takes 12% of... Shit, you know any sales revenue and any in-game purchase revenue for a moment i don't even know if they do it for in-game purchases but certainly sales they take 12 percent rather than 30 percent, and that certainly seems a lot more agreeable to developers and publishers hence the number of people going to the epic game store wow wow epic uh, shouldn't have a game store etc <laughs> we'll just insert that there for the a certain corner of pc gamerdom um but yeah where, where do you guys stand on this like is it well is 30% too high and as rob fahi pointed out kind of what's the alternative what number is right so is 30 too high? Probably. One one quote I really liked in Rob's column was, um, businesses clearly can survive a 30% tool on their activities on iOS and Android and Steam and so on, but that doesn't mean they should have to. And I think that's the really core of the debate for me is like, yeah, 30% is probably okay for big games at least or like, but can't we do a bit better than that? Probably, and we probably should uh, try to find other alternative um, revenue sharing options. Um, So one interesting um, revenue sharing example is um, itch.io, which has an open revenue sharing uh, policy, which means you can literally give whatever you want, depending on how much revenue your game makes. So I'm not saying that we're going to go from 30% to that open revenue sharing thing, uh, because that would be too um, optimistic, but there is certainly options out there that could be explored. Uh, there was a very interesting comment on Rob's column from um, Gavin Price, who is studio director and founder at Playtonic Games, who was pointing out that maybe a sliding scale could work based on lifetime revenues on the store. Uh, the split could start very high, he said, and then uh, it could uh, move depending on re- re- revenue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think there are there are options out there, and I think it's really good to question whether or not that thirty percent um, is a good thing or not. Sliding scale would be interesting because like, Valve is Valve mm. is trying that with their around uh, Epic Game Store launching. Obviously, they they started doing tiered system for their revenue share. So if your game earns fifty million dollars or more, or if you've earned you know, fifty million dollars in sales or more, then you get a higher revenue share for developers um, because you've already been a success. So I wonder, I wonder if something like that would work. Thing is, store, yeah. Because it turns it into, you know, it will become an actual tax. Like that's how tax works. You know, if you if you're earning yeah. under a certain amount, you don't pay any tax. You earn over, then you earn over a certain point, you pay X amount of tax. You earn over a certain point of that, you pay X amount. Um, uh, I think the thing is, I don't know how much it costs um, to run these stores, and I don't know how much money they really make. Obviously, they're profitable, and they need to be profitable, and they want to grow, and they want to expand. Like, interestingly, people no, people don't question this when it comes to retail. 
Like there, there is there are these costs with with shipping into boxes. Everyone goes, well, there's a there's a cost there. You know, someone needs to make the box, someone needs to print the disc, someone needs to deliver the disc to the shop. The shop needs to hire staff. The shop needs to put lights on in the store because we can see the cost of for game or GameStop, and we can see the cost for of of the products, the physical product. Because we can see that we go right. Oh, that's fine. You know. We'll sell the game at uh, uh, thirty dollars. Uh, retail takes X cuts. Just, just distributor takes this cut, and the publisher takes this cut. That makes sense. We can see we can see where our money is being spent, and I think there's less of an issue. Whereas when it comes to something like Steam or or, or iOS or whatever, that the the thirty percent seems high because hang on, all I'm doing, I'm, in fact, I'm doing half the work. I'm the one creating all the assets. I'm sticking them up on the store page. I'm the one doing all the promotion and the marketing. What are you doing, Apple? What are you doing, Steam, to justify taking so much? I understand you've got the platform and I'm going to have to pay something in order to get on that platform. But what are you, why are you, why are you uh, um, taking such a massive amount of money? And, you know, and that's, that's the question. And the answer is, I actually don't know. Is, you know one thing I've, I've discovered moving from a, even in the media, going from like a print title to a, to a digital title, actually the cost savings aren't quite as drastic as you think. You know, just because you're not distributing a physical good, it isn't as massively cheaper than, than you might imagine. There are different costs involved and there's different expertise needed and all this kind of thing. You know, having an on-call on tech team costs more money than, than, than hiring a printer to, to put something through a machine once a week. So it is, there is, there is there, you know, I don't know how much it actually costs to run these things. Then maybe the costs aren't hugely unreasonable. The fact that Epic can charge so little suggests that it may be a little unreasonable. But, um, but uh, without knowing that, without actually looking through the accounts and pouring through the numbers, I don't know. And I guess it depends if you're feeling like you get good value out of it, you know, um, um, because if you think that Steam's doing a fantastic job, then perhaps you don't mind um, spending that kind of money if you if you are getting a, a good service and you're selling lots of games. But if you're not selling lots of games, I suspect you don't feel that way. Yeah, the thing with Steam is like, and you can sort of see this, is that for a while the Steam store was just there, just doing the same things without really changing. And you could see that that money was sort of being funneled into Valve's black hole of whatever weird projects it wanted to focus on, which it was able to do because Steam was making all of this money. So, like, they've gone through Steam machines, uh, the Valve Index, uh, the Steam Controller, uh, they've done Half-Life Alex. Like, they have the, the leeway to do this because Steam is just making all this money, and for a long time it wasn't changing. Now with Epic, they are starting to, to add... A, 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 a couple more features and improve the store uh, a little bit faster. Like it, it does feel probably in the last year and a half, two years that there is a hand at the till again, but for a while there, it, it was just, there's a storefront and we, everyone gives steam a certain cut because it's the most popular storefront there. And then, it the money is just there and i mean apple even to bring apple in on it uh, is one of the most profitable companies in the world so I, yeah i i think they can come down probably a little bit uh do they have to no because they're so popular that there's probably never going to be a big enough shift away from them but mm. should they yeah probably 
I, 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 you know, this competition is a great thing. I think the Epic Store is an, a brilliant thing. I mean, whether uh, gamers will not agree with me, but you know, Epic coming in and forcing Steam. You know, Steam could have just cut the co- Steam could have gone right. Okay, Epic's in. I know we'll cut ten percent off. Ep- um, we will. Uh, we'll sort that out. There we are. When Epic's nothing now, they don't have a. Be- we have a better store. We're we're not quite as we're not quite as cheap as Epic, but we are pretty much as cheap. You know, you know, you're clearly going to go with us. They didn't do that. Steam, they made a tweak to their pricing, but Steam's reaction has been to really ramp up their quality, the quality of their store. They've actually won back some big players. Like they lost a load of big players, but they've got Microsoft putting games out now frequently on there. They um, so and that's great and that's really wonderful. I do think though, thirty percent is probably too high. Um, and I think I actually love. I actually don't mind the idea of a sliding scale, you know, um, but the, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that that kind of exists actually, um, in a way. So, but I, I, um, I don't know. The answer question is 30% too high. I would say yes. But, um, uh, as I say, I, I'm not quite sure what the number is cause I don't know what it costs to run these stores and I don't know, um, what's needed because the thing is of Apple, you know, they're a public company. They need the, they public companies need growth. And if they're not going to get growth from, uh, if, if they're not getting, if, if they're going to cut their price, the costs, they're going to lower their revenue in one area, where are they going to make up for that? That's a question they have to ask in the boardroom um, and work out. And um, it's not a simple, Steam can do it, Valve can do it. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, no, I, th- I think I think pricing is too high. Um, but uh, uh, I don't, um, but I do, I am, I do, I'm pleased by particularly what Steam are doing at the moment in trying to react to the epic competition. I think, Although, I think it's agreed yeah. that 30% is too high. The problem is we're not going to move away from that while that is the standard. So Apple commissioned, uh, Apple's under investigation from uh, the European Commission for Antitrust, uh, you know, maneuvers and strategies to, to, to check whether they are, you know, exploiting their position. Um, and they, they commissioned a defense against this, specifically focusing on the 30% cut. And they, you know, albeit this is commissioned by Apple, but, I, you know, this sounds this, this sounds realistic. Of 37 stores that they studied, vast, um, no, sorry, yeah, oh, mo- yeah, the vast majority claim 30%. So that includes the Google Play Store, the Amazon App Store, the Samsung Galaxy Store, the Microsoft Store, the Xbox Store, the PlayStation Store and the Nintendo eShop. All of them take 30%. And then there were I didn't put it into our article but there were from other industries like you know for subscriptions and stuff a 30% cut is the standard. Like so until it, it's it's very much kind of <laughs> almost like the the Microsoft and PlayStation next gen price run. Everyone's waiting for the other person to move first. Epic has moved first. They've done Right here we go, twelve percent job done. No one else is moving. There is a there is a smaller game store, um, My Dot Games, which is a Russian owned publisher. They've done a ninety ten split, but only if you're only for sales that come through links, you know, advertising links that direct you directly to the My Dot Games store. So not organic sales, specifically ones that advertise the market, which is a bit of a catch, bit of a caveat. It's like I don't think that really counts. So until someone else explores this kind of twelve percent or you know twenty percent or just a lower revenue, none of the others are going to move. None, and 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 why should Apple be the first to move when all the others are still claiming thirty percent as well? But Apple is key in in cementing that thirty percent. Like half of those stores you mentioned came after Apple. True, that's true. So it it. it 
and I guess the the difference is like some of those stores, particularly the the um, Amazon App Store, the Samsung Galaxy Store, the uh, Google Play Store, and the Microsoft Store. Those are not mandatory stores. You do not have to use those to download. And that's another part of the European Commission investigation is like the fact that iOS devices you have to use the App Store in order to put software on it. You cannot do anything else. Now that's the same for the consoles. I feel like consoles feel like it. They are they're a dedicated gaming device put out by that company. They have a limited function, whereas smartphones have have so so many uses. Much like computers, it kind of feels like that needs to be a bit more open. If that makes sense. Yeah, Tim Sweeney. I'm trying to find the quote, but I can't find it. He actually defended um, the thirty percent thing when it came to consoles. He said that they were re- that was reasonable because um, they basically built the ecosystem. They built the audience in the first place. You know. It's not a case of, um, uh, uh, you know, it's not like PC, which is an open platform. You know, it's not Valve didn't build the uh, PC gaming audience, whereas Nintendo did build the Nintendo audience. So Nintendo taking a cut, a significant cut for people for for its for access to its audience was understandable. I think it was something like that. And I really, really, if Tim's listening, I do apologise. I completely got that wrong. Um, but I guess that, but then you could argue Apple does the same thing in that regard. So it's... Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, he seems to change his mind. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in terms of... I'll, I'll say one last thing. In terms of the sliding, I mean, the model is sort of already there because uh, I think Unreal and both Unity for their engine sales do the... Look, if you're under uh, 100,000 in sales, you don't pay anything. So that that's good for indies. That's great for indies. They can get on something like Steam or the App Store and make some money. If you're above a hundred thousand, you pay say twenty percent. And then once you get above a lifetime revenue number, which of course usually is only the very largest, I think Steam's is far too high because like The Witcher just got there. The, the Witcher 3 just got there after selling so far much uh, in the industry. So that tells me that's a little bit too high. But, like, you know, drop it down once you reach that topper, uh, upper threshold from, like, 20% to, like, Epic's 12. I think that could work. Because uh, the problem is, is if you do the sliding and just start it out at a really high number, like, let's say, like, 30 40%, until you get to a certain point, then indies are just crushed immediately. Oh, I was thinking it'd be reversed. Oh, okay, you were thinking um, the other way. Um, yeah, so it'd be like yeah, but um, yeah, you sort of you, you tax the rich to support the uh, support the uh, you, you, you tax the take. I guess then you'd lose the take twos, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, re- reportedly the sliding scale is there in Apple's case for um, for the rich. So there, there were emails shown during the the U.S. Congress um, hearing that show that they quietly negotiated n- negotiated or were negotiating with Apple that the first year of subscription for Amazon Prime Video, Apple would only take fifteen percent rather than the thirty percent it takes for the full for the first year. So so that sliding scale is there, providing you know the right person at Apple. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next Monday with your usual news show and those extra shows, the additional spin-off shows, they are so, so very close to their debut. Hopefully we'll uh, have those up in the next couple of weeks. 
Until then, you can find all previous episodes on your podcasting platform of choice, and you can get your daily dose of news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Thank you.